this week on The Perfect Scam. He was arrested and held without bail for an entire year. He still believed that he was going to walk away from this. He had been convicted of felonies and given years and years of sentencing time, and he never spent more than a couple of months in jail. So he really thought he was going to walk away from this. Welcome back to The Perfect Scam. I'm your host, Bob Sullivan. When we left our story, Linda Diaz was hot on the trail of Derek Aldred. He had used a set of fake identities to date and steal money from women all around the country for decades. Linda is now obsessed with making sure Aldred finally gets the justice he deserves. She's emptied all the furniture from one room in her home just so she can post all the evidence she's collected on the walls and so she can try to connect the dots. Aldred stole all the money in Linda's retirement account, left her and her son with a pile of debts and nowhere to turn but to other victims. So Linda is working with Missy Brandt, who lives nearby in Minnesota and was also dating Aldred at the same time he was living with Linda. And the two of them are working with Cindy Pardini, who lives in San Francisco, and says Aldred stole $200,000 from her years earlier. Together, they work to compile a list of women betrayed by Derek Aldred, and it keeps growing and growing. And if you had to come up with a number, I mean, if you try to even hazard a guess how many women he did this to? At least 400. Over and over, Aldred has seduced women, stolen their money, and then vanished. He's been arrested several times on various fraud charges, but never held for long. And as soon as authorities release him on bail, he disappears to another part of the country and starts over. As we pick up their hunt, Aldred has skipped a court hearing in Arizona and fled to Texas, where, Linda and Missy learn, Aldred is at it again. We got a hold of, actually Cindy got a hold of the two young ladies in the Dallas area that were both dating him at the same time. Rachel Monroe, an investigative reporter, is working on a story about romance scams for The Atlantic, and she's been drawn to the story of Derek Aldred and the story of this band of women who have gotten together to track him down. She's interviewed several of the women involved in the chase. Yeah, and that was like a really remarkable thing to see and hear about because they're all pretty different. I mean, I, the, I spent the most time with, with Linda and with Missy, and, you know, they are two women who I d- like probably wouldn't have been friends otherwise like really different politics really different kind of ways of being in the world interests you know family backgrounds but I think that they could each see in the other both this similar experience you know this thing that most people couldn't understand but the two of them could could understand each other and then and also like in in seeing how amazing, you know, this other woman was who had had the same experience, they could almost like learn to forgive and stand up for themselves again, because they're like, well, if it could happen to her, you know, it could happen to anybody. And then like, oh, they, they kind of bolstered each other's confidence a little bit in that way. And now the band of women who are working to end Aldred's reign of terror have a secret ally, NCIS, the Naval Criminal Investigation Service. Linda has given a host of evidence to a Chicago-based NCIS investigator, including a bunch of fake medals Aldred had left behind when he vanished. The feds 
are now involved. They want Aldred for stolen valor. When they reach out to Aldred's current scam targets, the two women he's dating near Dallas and to local cops there, having the feds involved is a big help. And the police department in the colonies, that it's a city called the colonies near Dallas, they were willing to help set up a sting to actually arrest him. And the NCIS was, <clears throat> was just getting involved at that time. The colonies police department, of course, believed the stories of the of the girls, and they had us in the background, you know, giving our stories. And they set forth and arrested him, and immediately contacted the federal government. It's amazing when the police contact the federal government; they get a lot more help than when a person does. So Aldred is picked up in a simple sting operation. He's charged with credit card abuse on June first, twenty seventeen. But getting this man in handcuffs is really not much of an accomplishment. After all, he's been arrested and released before. This time, however, the involvement of NCIS is actually the big break. The laws about causing emotional turmoil are unclear at best, but the laws about pretending to be a war hero when you aren't are very clear. Yeah, I mean, it was so interesting to me in this one, too, that part of the reason they were able to get federal law enforcement involved was because of stolen valor and this idea that, you know, okay, he was wearing these medals that he didn't earn and under like false pretenses. If you think about what this guy did, like the stolen valor aspect, like that he would, you know, that that would be the charge that would escalate things seems sort of improbable. But because I don't think that we have the laws on the books to sort of account for that this kind of deep emotional violation. Still, there is a long road between yet another arrest of Aldred and Aldred being kept behind bars. Aldred tells investigators very little at first. Here's audio from one of those first interviews. I went to went to prison in California. Uh, went to prison in Minnesota. Certainly wasn't proud of it. I'd been back with police cars till I was 35 years old. I mean, uh, never gotten in trouble and. Uh, you know, I went off the deep end real quick and just kind of kept going off, I guess. This time, Aldred isn't given the chance to leave town, but there's still concern he won't really face the music. He was arrested and held without bail for an entire year. He still believed that he was going to walk away from this. He had been convicted of felonies and given years and years of sentencing time, and he never spent more than a couple of months in jail. So he really thought he was going to walk away from this. But as the story begins to get national attention, in part thanks to Rachel's reporting, Aldred eventually faces more serious charges. He has stolen in the millions, according to federal prosecutors. Um, and not only that, he has really stolen their ability to trust. Six months after the arrest, just before Christmas 2017, Aldred pleads guilty to two counts of aggravated ID theft and to mail fraud. Even still, Linda is worried Aldred will sweet-talk his way into leniency. He sure tries. Those who speak to Aldred, even after his guilty plea, are never sure how seriously he's taking it. He tells one journalist from Dateline, I'm not trying to justify my behavior. My behavior was, I, I was a horrible boyfriend, absolutely horrible. Destroying someone's life, I think, is a bit exaggerated. 
Rachel interviews him from jail, and it's clear Aldred isn't contrite. In fact, he's still scheming. Yeah, I mean, I went into, uh, at the time he was in jail, and so we spoke over a kind of like a video call. I went, I was at the jail, but I, I couldn't speak to him face to face. And through the kind of grainy video, he didn't explicitly deny, you know, the things that I had sort of asked him about and or told him that we were covering in the, in the piece, the various accusations that the women I spoke to had, had made against him. But he, he kept promising, you know, like, oh, no, but there's like, there's more to this story. There's more, it's more complicated. You know, I'll, I'll tell you more. I'll give you everything. I'll, he told me at one point he was going to like give me the password to his email and then I could log into his email and just like read anything I wanted, which, you know, for a journalist is like total catnip. And then he kept the promises kept being kind of delayed or foreclosed or, you know, it never it never came to fruition. And then I realized like, oh, I, I'm being conned right now. This is like he's the, trying to do it to you. He's trying yeah. to do it to me. And it worked, right? I was like, you know, I'm holding off on the story because he's like, I'm going to get some really great stuff from Derek. And then I kind of heard myself say that. And I was like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's so easy. You know, I, I knew he was a con man. I was writing about him. You know, I was interviewing him and in, he was in jail for being a con man. And still, you know. Wow. Another few months go by. It's now August 2018, two years since that magical summer Linda spent with the man she thought was Rich Peterson. And finally, it's time for the sentencing of Derek Aldrich. I saw him in court when he was in shackles and an orange jumpsuit, and it was nice in a weird way to see that they were taking it seriously. I think before that point... With all of the convictions and releases that he had gotten before, I didn't, I didn't realize how seriously they were taking it. And when they brought him in shackled, his, his hands and legs in front of him in an orange jumpsuit, you know, not even allowed to put on a suit for the sentencing, um, I knew they were taking it seriously. But until she knows he's going away for a long time, she's still worried. But... The judge who sentenced him was a great man. He read word for word every one of our statements. And mine was like 20 pages long, typed. Wow. Yeah. Wow. He, I know he read it because he called us out by name in court and listened to what we had to say. And he said he spent the whole night looking for ways that he could put this guy away for much longer. Um, but because of the way that the prosecutor had negotiated and the crimes that he was convicted of, the max he could give him, the prosecutor asked for 22 and he gave him 24 with a required three year, basically under house arrest kind of probation and not allowed, the big key was he's not allowed to use any electronics or computers his entire time. The judge also sentences Aldred to pay restitution of more than $250,000. Prosecuting U.S. Attorney Joseph D. Brown says, quote, This defendant left a trail of tears, emotional devastation, and financial ruin behind him. It is clear that he will never change, and we expect his sentence to reflect that. We are glad we were able to get some level of justice for these women. And when you hear that he's going away for a couple of decades, what is that like for you? I I wonder who he'll be conning 
in the in the prison system. And if he can't get away with it in there, they'll probably take care of it in a different way. But I I still think he'll come out conning other people. I don't think he learned any lesson. I, I don't think he has any true feelings for anybody. Um, he's a sociopath and and he's just one of a bunch of them. I hate to say it that way. There's there are more out there, but but he was unique. Um, and it's good that he's been put away. By the time Aldred is led away to prison, Rachel has moved on to other stories, but she still keeps in touch with the victims. Everybody had been pretty worried that the same thing that had always happened would happen again and that, you know, he would face a, a slap on the wrist, basically. So I was I was surprised. And I think there was some of that was was exchanged mutually, you know, over over Facebook, over email. But did you get a sense that there was at least a little relief up from that? Yeah, I think so for sure. I mean, it was it was um, more than anybody expected in terms of the sentencing, and, and kind of you know definitely outside the bounds of what other people had been sentenced to for for these kinds of crimes before. So I think it, they were glad that it sent a message in some way. The attention from national media, the attention from NCIS, and most of all, the relentless pursuit by the victims who banded together—all these things played a role in getting Aldred off the streets and away from online dating sites. Derek got a, a quite a serious sentence, you know, more than two decades in federal prison. And so that's, I think, quite a significant and notable result that, that this was prosecuted, you know, as not just another one-off crime, but, you know, the, the pattern of the fraud being, you know, crucial to to that sentence, I think sets a precedent in some ways. And, you know, the aftermath is, I think it like does, the story has gotten out there and these women are so, have been so generous in telling their story and are such like sympathetic winning people that I think, you know, we can all, it's easy to to relate to them. And they're also different from each other. You know, everybody's got somebody they could relate to in this story. And so I think that hopefully will help people come forward and, and be, gives them hope that's coming forward and about situations like this, you know, won't be fruitless. As for Aldred, well, he's still in prison and still seems to be doing his thing. And he still writes to me. That's that's the other interesting thing. Mm. Like I've acquired a it's a little bit of a one sided pen pal relationship. He he writes to me and every now and then I write back. But uh, I get a Derek writes. To Derek you. writes to me. Yeah, I get like a Christmas note from him every year. Sometimes he like asks me for advice like I I'm not really sure what's going on there, but always interesting. I think he was trying to put together an appeal of some kind. He's he's reached out because I think various, you know, true crime producers or whatever have have contacted him and he's like, "Should I talk to this person?" and I'm always like, "I I, I don't know, Derek. Yeah. Like, oh God, now you're his talk. agent. Right, exactly. I'm just like, I can't. That, that's not a question for me to answer. But he's still in character is the term I would use. He hasn't seen the error of his ways or any of that. You know, the tenor of it is never, you know, I'm I'm so sorry or anything like that. It's mm. just, you know, maintaining like some kind of friendly. I mean, they're, they're always like very friendly messages, you know, almost as if we're like pals of some kind, which is which is um strange to me because, you know, we only had that one, not even face to face conversation, you know, video conversation when he was in jail. But I guess, you know, 
seems like it serves some use to him. Are you 55 plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps Seniors Volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer, starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov slash your moment today. Meanwhile, the aftermath for Derek Aldridge's victims picking up the pieces, well, that's only just beginning. But it began with forgiving themselves. One of the girls who came forward and testified, her story was from 1995. That's when he defrauded her and stole part of her college fund. She was young. He was young. This guy was allowed to do this for decades and decades because people were afraid to look stupid. It's, you're not stupid if you get conned by someone who knows what they're doing. You're not stupid for believing that someone could love you or that you could have found a good person. That doesn't make you stupid. Even professionals were shocked by the things Derek Aldred did. He must have been a very good storyteller. Oh, incredibly, incredibly good. The NCIS investigator down the road commented that he had never met a liar quite so charismatic and believable. That's remarkable. Did he actually serve in the military ever? That's remarkable. No, in fact, when I finally figured out who he was, I spoke to his daughter and she said she doesn't believe he ever had a legitimate job in her entire lifetime. Maybe six months driving a truck, but that was it. After her story comes out, Rachel learns just how common romance scams are and how many people are out there like Derek Aldred. I mean, the other thing that's interesting is I just got so many emails from other women. Mm. I mean, I'm sure you all do too. Like, fortunately, I've, I've I've kind of moved on a little bit with my beat, and so I can't I can't cover all these. But it just makes you realize like how how prevalent this stuff is, and how people still really struggle to get the attention of law enforcement for for these kinds of crimes. I have to say that's really depressing part of this profession, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, there's something like this isn't getting covered enough. And so you do this remarkable story and there is attention and that's great. But then all that does is you hear from all these other people who deserve their own Atlantic piece, right? And you just can't write them all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We've already talked about romance scam victims telling federal authorities they've had $1.3 billion stolen just last year. And that's three times the amount from just five years ago. Why the surge in Derek Aldred-type stories now? What role do you think technology plays in allowing criminals to commit these kinds of crimes? Well, I think in the case of Derek, it it allowed him to present a version of himself online to sort of do the research and create the pictures and create the backstory that was tailored to each of the women that he was involved in. You know, he he sort of maybe had some of that skill on his own, but the but technology sort of it helped him research these people connect with these people, you know, through dating site and build a whole world that seemed you know, it was, I think a lot of them 
said to me, like, even when they would start to doubt him, they'd be like, but it was, it would be so much like work to come up with this <laughs> elaborate of a lie. And I think he, he probably couldn't have done that without having technology to sort of enable him. It's, you know, it's funny, I, the theme of a guy blowing into town mysteriously and lying about who he is from the past was easy in the Right, and you can picture that happening in a Western town in the 1800s in a way that you can't nowadays because people can be searched. Um, but I, I do think it's a it's a double-edged sword, right? It's, it makes it enables an awful lot of things, a, a lot of this theater that we've discussed, the technology. Yeah, totally. And you can sort of almost like create a backstory for yourself. And if if you're sophisticated enough to kind of build some of that online, it starts to it starts to feel real because you search somebody and and you see what it looks like their past, even even if it's created. One of Linda's takeaways from this part of her life is the importance of knowing someone's life story. There are some things that I look at differently. Nowadays, meeting people's family and friends is important. Knowing that they had a childhood and a history and a family is important. And well, yeah, there are probably people who run a lot around and have left everything behind and there are very few people who legitimately don't have family and friends that you could meet or talk to or be around. And he always used that to make me feel sorry for him. And, hmm. you know, how, how great it was. I had such great friends and that my family was so close. And, and now I see it was, it was a way to, um, to con people more, to get them to feel sorry for you, to always be talking to their daughter or their mother or somebody, but you can never talk to them um, or never meet them. Those, those are signs that, that something's wrong. Linda's heart was badly scarred by this experience. All these women will tell you that. Scarred, but not ruined. If you ha even have an inkling that it's too good to be true, explore that idea because too good to be true feels that way for a reason now there are some great great people out there and there are a lot of people who are going to say you're stupid if you believe all this stuff you have to make yourself vulnerable to fall in love to make any relationships really you have to be vulnerable to another person i did uh, pull a police report on the fake name that i got but i didn't have his real name so that didn't do me any any good. Yeah, you know, as, as awkward as it may be, look at their driver's license. Ask to meet some family or friends. Don't let yourself get swept away by someone who is isolated from all other people, who gives you all the attention in the world because they're hiding something probably. Hmm. I really like what you said though. Um, you have to be vulnerable in a relationship you know if the end result of all of this is you're afraid of everyone and skeptical of everything that's not a life you want either right exactly i don't want to be an untrusting angry alone you know person i i still am very much a people person and i do trust but a lot of times i will even with a friendship i will verify things i'm not sneaking around or doing things behind people's back, but I will, I will dig a little deeper into who they are 
before I let them around my kid or in my life. You have to be vulnerable to be in a relationship. That's a good reminder. Rachel has similar advice to offer. Well, you know, it's it's like it's tricky, right? Because reporting on these stories, it's hard not to feel yourself turn like a little bit more suspicious or cynical or or doubting because it's just hearing how prevalent this kind of manipulation is. Derek is an extreme example of it, but there certainly are a lot of people who are sleazy and sort of more minor ways or manipulative or lying about other things. But I, I guess it's like we also have to balance that that sense of suspicion and mistrust with you can't let it like totally take over our lives and our hearts, right? So I don't know. Maybe that's maybe the conclusion is always like trust but verify, right? Just think about if something seems too good to be true, you know, that should be a red flag. If somebody's telling you exactly what you want to hear, there might be a reason for it. I still believe in true love, but um, you know, it's important to do research too. I still believe in true love, but it's important to do your research. And yet, even the best research isn't foolproof. It's good to have your radar tuned to certain frequencies, however. I've written extensively about other stolen valor cases. And so I like, I definitely, anytime anybody describes themselves to me as like a war hero and their stories kind of sound like they're out of a movie, I am always suspicious of that. To me, that is a red flag. Most people that I know who, you know, did serve in the military and do have those experiences, like that is not something that they come out with right away. So that's a, that's a more like tailored specific mm. piece of advice. You know, certainly not always true, but Mm, no, that, that's pretty actually, consistent. That's really interesting. So if something terrible like this happens to you, and it really could happen to anyone, the most important lesson of all from the Derek Aldridge story is make sure to get it on the record. Talk about it. Tell the police. Warn others. What can society do? What can we all do to make this less likely to happen? If someone does this to you, don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to call the police. If someone even steals your credit card and you know them and they just used it once, at the very minimum, confront them about it. And if they're not a family member, if they are a family member, I don't know what you do. If they're not a family member, at least call the police and, and get it written down that this happened. Even then, the police don't always listen or do their own research to find out that this guy's been doing this for 30 years. But be more of an investigator yourself and tell someone. Get something on the books, because if he did it to you, he's going to do it to someone else. And by you not saying anything, you're just allowing him to hurt someone else. What would you say to members of other local police departments about the experience that you had when you when you tried to come forward initially? Pay attention. Don't treat all of these situations as domestic arguments, because they're not. When someone uses another person's credit, name, identity, even if it's in the midst of a relationship, it's still against the law and it still should be treated as a crime. You shouldn't treat it as, oh, this couple got in a fight 
and he was using her checkbook? That doesn't even make sense. So they've got to take these financial internet crimes much more seriously, and they're going to have to educate themselves. And the banks are going to have to start being held accountable. Rachel has ideas about how society could handle these situations better, too. Well, I think removing the shame and stigma of this, of like victimization in general and and speaking about like these kinds of crimes would really help a lot and go a long way so people can share their stories and, and be more open or, you know, if they're in a situation that feels kind of questionable to them and not being embarrassed and hiding it, but rather, you know, sharing it with people and and bringing it to their to their friends or their family members and sort of giving it that like that test you know does it does this does this ring true to you does this make sense i know in my relative's case she started to feel kind of confused about this man she was involved in who she had sent some money to and and she reached out to her daughter and her daughter was did you know did a bunch of sleuthing and like reverse image searching and and figured out that he wasn't who he said he was so i think we can all like help each other more if we kind of allow ourselves to do that. And then, you know, I think that there are probably like fraud protections. There are probably like policies that could be put in place. So, you know, as a society, we're we're doing a bit more to shield people from these crimes or making the consequences a little stiffer for the perpetrators and helping victims like have a better chance at, at getting some sort of justice. I think those two prongs would, would probably both go a long way to, to helping. Sharing the truth, seeing the truth, can be very, very painful. But it can also be very freeing. I mean, yeah, in a lot of my pieces, what what I'm reckoning with or what I'm writing about people who are reckoning with the, the kind of loss of that illusion. They had something that they thought was was really beautiful, you know, whether it was like a business opportunity or, you know, some magical health cure or a relationship or a community that was, you know, going to solve all of their problems. And that, uh, that turned out to be, you know, not, not what it seemed. And, and there's like a lot of heartbreak in that, but I think to me, there's something really, really beautiful about um, engaging with reality and, and what's really here and 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 the the truth and the reality you know the these illusions of like a, a magical cure a magical person any of those things can can be really seductive but when you lose something like that you you kind of gain something else which is like a closer relationship with 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 what's real and what's true and what's really is in front of you and the relationships with the people in your life who who really are who they say they are and so i think it's you know when you tear down an illusion, trying to appreciate, you know, what's what's left and what's real and what isn't an illusion. And that's kind of the balance that I try to strike in my mind and that the people who I write about who, you know, come through these situations with the most uh, grace and, and optimism, they seem to be able to, to frame it in that way. That is really very beautiful. Thank you. You've, you've, lo- you've lost something, but you've gained something more real. Yeah. When you lose something you believed in, you gain something much more real. That's a powerful notion. Hopefully, we can help a little bit with that. So to help us explore the problem of romance scams a little more, 
And to talk about ways to protect yourself, we have Steve Baker back on the show. Steve worked at the Federal Trade Commission for a long time, and he studied romance scams for the Better Business Bureau. And he doesn't pull punches. This is the number one source of complaints and the money, largest money loss for individuals of anything reported to the FTC or IC3. It's the number one complaint, romance scams? Yeah, for individuals. There's business complaints. I think business email compromise was the number one dollar loss, but that's, of course, mainly aimed at businesses. But for individuals, suffer scams, there's more about romance frauds than anything else. Victims can really go through hell. More than just money is stolen. We all think about the dollar value, but that's not the worst of it. I mean, a lot of these victims are emotionally devastated. There is a support group for romance fraud victims in Los Angeles, and they, they've they told me from that group that everybody there has, commit, has at least thought of suicide. And I've had uh, police in Australia have told me that they believe they have more suicides over romance frauds than they do murders in Australia. Oh, my God. If you or someone you know is in crisis, the Suicide in Crisis Lifeline is always there. Call or text 988 or chat 988lifeline.org. So this is emotionally devastating. And in addition, the, the crooks try to distance people from their normal support groups, their families, their friends, whatever. And so those relationships take a beating too. They relieve people real alone. And then by the time they realize it's all the scam, you know, they've got all sorts of problems because they don't have that support around them anymore. They've burned those personal ties. They're also using romance fraud victims to travel over the world and transport drugs, like give them packages that have, have got drugs sewn into the lining of the suitcase or whatever that have got drugs. There's people there's a bunch of Americans all over the world that are sitting in prison, and I believe most of them are romance fraud victims. Don't mistake romance scam criminals as small-time operators just sending out random text messages or dating site connections, Steve says. No, this is organized crime. They're violent criminals. They're also into drugs and guns, prostitution rings with the traditional mafia in Italy these days. So they're, 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 they're bad dudes. These are professionals. This is what they do for a living. They're very good at what they do. And uh, you've really got to be cautious. This is a worldwide fraud. I mean, there's people all over the world that, that, that are being concentrated on. And it's a way bigger problem than most people realize. Steve has studied the psychology of romance scam criminals. And well, it's a little bit scary. Well, I actually sat in on a trial of a Roman, Nigerian romance fraud guy one time. And there was a there's a psychologist in Australia named Monica Whitty who's done some, she's done more extensive research in who are these guys, how do they work, who are the victims than anybody uh, I know of. And she's got a lot of amazing insights. At any rate, she was an expert there and she testified that she thought that the guy had psychopathic tendencies. In other words, there's a bell curve of human beings. Some people we all have met who are extremely sensitive extremely sensitive throughout one end of the scale but at the other end of that scale are people that are psychopaths and they're about i've seen estimates five percent of the population 
and they don't feel guilt. It just just isn't in their makeup. And they lie very easily and they're often very intelligent and very clever. And we all think, of course, that we should be able to detect if people are lying. But but the reality of the real world, if somebody is really determined and good at it, if they're a psychopath, obviously, you know, we often can't cannot detect that. You know, in fact, I've seen uh, some research showing that these people are just wired differently. And so people who are not psychopaths, when they encounter one, just don't know how to deal with it. It just doesn't register for them. Right. And they're apparently very difficult to catch. You know, we all think that we should be able to tell if there's somebody we know in person is lying to us, that they have shifty eyes or they're, you know, something of a demeanor. And that may work with kids, friends, spouses. But for scammers, those skills we have don't work. I mean, because these people are really, really good at what they do. They're professionals. People forget that the term con man is short for confidence man. In other words, somebody whose skills are gaining your confidence and making you believe them. You know, I want to dwell on that point for a little while because I think it's really, really important. Folks who are professional liars have skills that most of us don't recognize. And we have, over years of being adults, built confidence that we can judge people's character. That's how we go through life. But when you encounter someone who is that good at lying, you, you you can't recognize it, right? It's extremely hard, even for professionals, to recognize them. Here's a sad side note to romance scam research. The people who are most likely to be targeted are the people who are most likely to believe in love. Professor Whitty actually, one of the studies she did, looked at, okay, who are the victims? And so she looked at a whole lot of different variables. Are they rich? Are they poor? Are they men? Are they women? Are they straight? Are they gay? Are they highly educated or not? And turned out all of those factors were awash. Didn't make any difference. The only commonality she found is that victims tended to be a little bit higher in a romantic sense. So, so I thought that was interesting because it's not educated, not educated. It's not rich, poor. I mean... It's all of us. It's people who believe in romance. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, that's actually among the more heartbreaking things you've ever told to me, Steve. But I think people would be surprised to hear that there's a relatively even split between men and women. There's no gender split. That's what Professor Woody found. I mean, women are more likely to report it, I think, than than men are, but it but but there's a huge amount of men, and there's a huge thing on the for the for the gay population as well. But there is good news. Steve believes there are now more people like Linda Diaz out there, more people willing to report they've been a victim of a romance crime, and law enforcement is starting to treat these crimes more seriously. One of the problems people had was they were going to police, and the police, you know, no experience with this stuff. And, you know, they just weren't sympathetic. They tended to blame the victim, you know, this person's dumb and didn't want to take the report. People are reporting it now. It is absolutely huge. I about guarantee there's somebody we know in our personal lives who's been a victim of a romance fraud. It's really, 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 really common. It's not just dating sites. They meet people on places like Solitaire. Or, or a Scrabble, those Scrabble websites and Google chats and meetings and like any place you can think of where people would reach out. The scammers have also got their fingers in those in those too. 
So what are the things people should do to protect themselves when looking for love online? Well, I would, I would, uh, like I said, I would Google the photo and the profile. They're all going to have a photo and people hold on to those. I would take an interesting line, turn a phrase out of a message or text message or email and put that in a search engine and see if you can't come up with, with another hit. Probably you can, you know, meet in person. Anybody that can't meet in person is probably very, very high likely 90% plus a scammer and ask them to do a zoom call so you can with a with a current newspaper or something like that they're not going to be able to do that they won't do that but anybody that won't i think that's a really strong indicator that you're dealing with with somebody who's who's engaged in fraud you know i was thinking as you were describing uh, the very good tip of saying get on a zoom meeting and, and show me a copy of a local newspaper the way I, I know you are where you say you are um, but man, in the first couple of moments of a potential romantic relationship, that sure seems like a almost a, a it could be interpreted as like a hostile thing to do. So I wonder how you get over the hump of not wanting to, you know, ask someone something like that, and you know, while you're busy trying to to flirt a romance. Well, they could say, "Gee, I I I fully believe you," and and uh, but you know, I heard Bob Sullivan, and he said that this is what I should do, and. I'm going to trust Bob, and and if you're if you are who you say you are, this this shouldn't be an issue. But but that is an issue. I mean, that is one of the tactics when people question or challenge these relationships. I mean, they either act hurt and threaten to abandon the relationship, or otherwise prey on your emotions. So that's why these things are hard to spot, hard to avoid. People sometimes react. How dare you ask me a question like that? And and that puts the victim off kilter, right? Sure, of course. So um, a good sign is if someone says, well, that's a weird question, but you know what? I understand why you're asking because I've been out there too. That's the way you should react to a question like that. Yeah, it really is. So ask questions. It's perfectly fine to talk about hard things at the beginning of a relationship. In fact, the way the other person reacts will tell you a lot. Heck, you can use the perfect scam as a conversation starter. I know this sounds silly, but did you hear that crazy episode about Derek Aldred? Anything to broach the subject and get the answers you deserve. No one should make you afraid to ask questions. And we'll keep asking them here. If you have been targeted by a scam or fraud, you are not alone. Call the AARP Fraud Watch Network Helpline at 877-908-3360. Their trained fraud specialists can provide you with free support and guidance on what to do next. Thank you to our team of scam busters. Associate producer, Annalie Embry. Researcher, Sarah Binney. Executive producer, Julie Getz. And our audio engineer and sound designer, Julio Gonzalez. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For AARP's The Perfect Scam, I'm Bob Sullivan. Bob Sullivan.